I'm Rob. Hello, I'm Paul. And for those of you who heard our last episode where we announced that Mr. David Kitchen would be in the UK during the recording of our January episode, that is indeed what's happening and I'm joined here today by Mr. Paul Schoons. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. That's excellent. We had uh, such a good reaction to you being on the Who Teaks Roadshow that when we needed a co-host this uh, this time, I think you were the logical person to call and in a good time zone too. Yes, yes. I'm only just across the ditch. Exactly, exactly. It makes things much easier than trying to hook up with our uh, UK friends, for example. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We've got a lot to crack through today, so I thought I'd kick off with some listener email from uh, our last episode, which seems so long ago now. I mean, it was only the end of December. We just watched the Christmas special, for example, but it, it seems an awfully long time ago. Does it seem that way to you, Paul? It does, it does. I've done so much this month already that that December seems a very long time ago. And to be honest, I've only watched the Christmas special once, so I just haven't found time to give it a rewatch yet, which is unusual for me. I usually try to do you know a new Doctor episode twice over at least. Well, interesting, because uh, this first letter from J.R. Southall will mention the Christmas episode, and we'll both have to mm-hmm. have something uh, intelligent to say in, re- in response. <laughs> I'll have to strain my memory on that one. <laughs> J.R. Southall says, OK, so on the subject of whether Moffat should have gone in 2015 or not, his natural end, probably, although personally I'd take another five years of this quite happily, if he had left then as intended, the BBC was simply going to wait for Chris Chibnall to be free, and we were going to have no Doctor Who whatsoever in either 2016 or 2017. So Moffat volunteered to step in and plug the gap. Nobody else was going to be asked to come in for it. This was because I was ranting a bit on the last episode saying I wish I wish Moffat had gone when he was meant to have gone. And uh, this is JR explaining uh, why. Do you have any thoughts on, on Moffat? Oh, I'm interested to know where JR's coming from with that. I mean, does he have inside information or is he speculating on whether Moffat volunteered? It's a good question. He doesn't say either way. I'd, I would err on speculation. Mm. It does seem to me that it's, it's uh, Doctor Who is such a huge money earner for the BBC that to, to hinge whether or not they had a 2017 series simply on Moffat volunteering or not does seem a bit hard to hard to understand. You, you, you'd think that they would they, they'd have a bit more sort of contingency there. Mm. I, I if if I had to speculate, and I don't have any inside information myself, but I would speculate that maybe Moffat was made an offer he couldn't refuse. Yes, yes. That they probably just said, "Hey, here's a here's here's a sum of money. We'd like you to do one more year for us." Yeah, because I think it's fair to say the BBC do like him, and he is pretty powerful there as well. Well, I mean, he you know he's got both Sherlock and, and Doctor Who, so and those are two of the biggest export earners for the for the for the BBC. So yeah, <laughs> I, I I I would imagine that they will be keen to keep him on in some capacity. I mean, I, I gather that Sherlock might not be coming back, and obviously Moffat's leaving Doctor Who. I, I wouldn't be too surprised if, if he has some sort of development deal going forward and we'll, we'll see more from Moffat with the BBC. Okay, JR continues. On the subject of whether there will be Rose-style references back to River Song, I really don't think there will be. I got the impression that the speech by Nardole at the end was deliberately there as a full stop on the subject and Capaldi's reaction was essentially him underlining that it's not something he'll be bringing up again. Now, again, this relates to something I was saying and, and indeed David was saying as well that... Uh, David in particular wouldn't like to see the Doctor moping after River Song all through the next series, and I sort of got the feeling from Nardole's speech that that might be what's happening, going to happen, and Nardole is going to be around to help him through it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I, I, you've mentioned you've only seen the Christmas special once, but did you yeah. have any sort of strong feelings one way or the other on how he was yeah, reacting? Yeah, that 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 particular bit, I kind of felt that was unnecessary. 
I felt that that as viewers we'd kind of like we'd got it that that um, Husbands of River Song had ended with with the, with her about to go to the library, and and that kind of closed the circle as far as my 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 um, reaction to it was. So to see that in this is a whole year later in terms of viewer time that that we're seeing this brought up yet again is kind of like was that really necessary? Was that did that really need to be explained? It's kind of like yeah, I, I kind of would have preferred to have just moved on. Not not had that speech there. Do you think he can't leave his characters alone sometimes? I do think that. I I, I think that the, you know all the moping over Amy and all the moping over over Clara. I I kind of feel that that is a that is a recurrent theme. Mind you, I mean that's that's as, just as true of, of of Russell's era as well. I mean, the whole of um, David Tennant's second season is basically him moping over losing Rose, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, so, so I, I, it's not it's not an accusation that I would specifically aim at at Moffat. I think it's just something that the modern Doctor Who tends to do, and maybe they're reacting against classic Doctor Who, where it's kind of like, oh, the companions died, right? We're off to do this type thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's kind of like, yeah, we, you know, because that, that felt too too on the nose in the old series, and I think they've reacted too far in the other direction by by by, by having the Doctor moping far too long. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's my take on it. New Who, it's all about the feels. So, uh, to round out this uh, message from JR, as to the TARDIS being able to go back to New York again, did you miss the dialogue at the beginning where the Doctor pointed out to Grant Jr. what he was doing in New York? No, I didn't miss that dialogue. I still don't know how he got the TARDIS there in the first place to be doing the, <laughs> to be making that machine. I still don't understand I, it. Yeah, and it wasn't he foiled from making the machine because because Grant swallowed the the gem that he needed for the machine. Yeah, so the machine never worked anyway. So yeah, so I he, don't know. And this is a certain amount of papering over the cracks, isn't it? It's kind of like you know that's something that Doctor Who seems to do quite a lot these days. Is this. An issue of continuity will just be sort of just papered over in a later episode. Yeah, sadly. Um, second email for this episode, and we're going to do this one in two parts because it's very, very long, uh, but it's a good one. It's from Richard Nolan. He says, Happy New Year, gents. Just finished listening to the latest Doctor Who show and had you drop and had to drop you a line. I haven't watched the Doctor Who Christmas special yet, and given my track record, we'll see if I do, but it was a good discussion. The reason for this email, uh, though, is the segments either side of it. Miniatures are one of my particular areas of interest as a long-term dabbler in gaming, so the first section was great to hear. Like Rob, I wasn't overly struck on the Eagle Moss figures, and I believe they had some quality control issues with the early ones, but I might have to give them another look. I've traditionally been a bit averse to pre-painted miniatures. Also not that impressed with the Warlord figures, the Doctors in particular are very ordinary. I did like Wilf, but not sure if that's the paint job or the sculpt. I am interested in having a look at the set with the different Cybermen versions and would grab a box of classic Daleks. Now, I'll just stop there and say, Paul, are you familiar with either of these ranges? He's talking about both the uh, the collector character each week and the magazine, or these very new uh, gaming figures that have uh, come out. I have a few of the, um, uh, the the miniatures that came in the part work because they, they very kindly sent me some issues to review, but no, I haven't kept up with them. And, and I, I, I have only know of the Warlord figures from other people talking about them. I'm not, not being a gamer myself. I, I, I don't really sort of have any motivation to collect miniatures. Not my area of expertise at all. 
Is that something you're into? Oh, look, I I am a tabletop gamer, although I haven't done a, a lot of it uh, this past year. But I would I would regard myself as one. And Doctor Who miniatures was something I was very into in the eighties. Um, Citadel miniatures or Farsa in the US used mm, to make these yep. little twenty five millimeter ones. That's right. And uh, I used to collect those, and indeed I've still got them here. Um, I recently uh, went on the Diddly Dumb podcast and was talking about them at, at some length. <laughs> Probably bored their entire audience. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I don't mind them. I, I actually don't even paint my Doctor Who ones because I'm not, I'm not that good a painter. So although I'll paint uh, a, a bunch of Anglo-Saxons, say, to play some, you know, war game with, I, I just keep my Doctor Who ones in the metal. But these new ones, I'm really not sold on. I have a friend who, who um, does, not, not Doctor Who, but, but wargaming miniatures, um, Warhammer, I think. And, and he spends far more time at painting than he does playing. Yeah. Oh, you have to, because some of these armies are absolutely huge. And uh, gosh, Warhammer, it's a very expensive hobby as well. I mean, wargaming, wargaming in general is expensive, but Warhammer in particular, oh, you can spend a lot of money. Moving on with the email, he says, I've also been trying to get more out of them with no response. Their standard line seems to be that uh, the range is mired in approvals and BBC red tape, but I would still have thought they could have given us some updates. The other minors is that the range is 32mm, so I suspect the Harlequin range, which is another range of Doctor Who miniatures out there, in particular will look a little small alongside them. The actual game has three modes, straight fight, and this will be the focus of the Dalek Cybermen box, and two more scenario-based versions, which are basically one-off and mini-campaign. Anyway, really good to hear that as a discussion topic, and if you ever want to do a dedicated segment on miniatures, dot, 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 sounds like we're going to have to have Richard on the show at some stage. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then his email goes into talking about his top five TV shows, which is something we did at the end of our Christmas uh, episode last year, and uh, we'll come to that again later in the show, because people are here to talk Doctor Who, and uh, that's what we're going to do. So let's move on with something timely. Um, alternative facts is a new phrase that's entered our, um, our collective consciousness of late <laughs> uh, in the last few days, actually. Alternative facts. And uh, people have been pointing out a line from uh, The Face of Evil Part 4, in which the Doctor says to Leela, you know, the very powerful and the very stupid have one thing in common. They don't alter their views to fit the facts. They alter the facts to fit their views. Paul, what did you think when you saw that <laughs> pop up in the news? I think I think you need the next line as well, which can be uncomfortable if you happen to be one of the facts that needs altering. Ooh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's just as poignant. <laughs> I mean, I think the reason that people became instantly aware of this is because um, I, I see this particularly on the things I follow on Facebook, is that the anniversaries of story Doctor Who stories tend to be celebrated. And it is the, um, you know, January 22nd, 1977 is two days ago in terms of an anniversary. So, I mean, uh, already popping up on my feed was the fact that it was the anniversary of Face of Evil Part 4, because that the people that I follow tend to sort of celebrate these sort of things. Um, and, and, and so I think there was a connection to be made there, and it's probably the, the most classic quote from Face of Evil anyway, so the fact that it tied very nicely into what was happening in world affairs at the time was, was, was just a piece of um, serendipity, I guess. Um, yeah, because I guess it's fair to say Doctor Who's often ahead of its time. I mean, but most science fiction is like that. You know, you look at Star Trek and things that were on Star Trek in the 60s have popped up in real life as real technologies and so on. So I guess in science fiction in general, this can happen. But this particular quote, you know, which which might not even necessarily come from a science fiction program, it could come from any kind of program, mm. just nails it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, you could go looking for 
for quotes that 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 um, relate to what's happening at the moment in Doctor Who, but the fact that it's one that ties very much into a story that's having its anniversary right this week anyway is kind of uncanny. Yeah, I yeah, I completely agree. And look, something else that recently had an anniversary is uh, the find of the lion, the episode of the Crusade that you helped find. Oh, nice in, segue there. <laughs> thank you very much. Back in uh, January of 1999. Do you have any reflections on, gosh, what is that, 18 years ago now? It is 18 years. I, I, at, at my work, I have a staff member who was only six months old when, when that we've found that episode, so it does my head in. You know, it's kind of like, it is a long time ago. But, um, yeah, it's, it's something I'm still immensely proud of. Um, it, it's, it, I've done obviously a lot of other stuff in Doctor Who fandom, but it's the one thing that everyone seems to know me for and everyone always wants to ask me about it whenever I meet a Doctor Who fan. They, they, they always want to sort of, um, if they don't know, if they don't know I found a, a Doctor Who episode, then, then it's something that they seize on once I tell them. And if they do know, it's the first thing they want to ask me about. It's, you know, my, my, I'm only one part of it. I mean, Bruce Grenville had the episode Neil Lambis was the one who tracked him down and made, did all the detective work I, my claim to fame was I went along with Neil to to see the episode when, when, when we first saw it and I was the one who negotiated its return to the BBC so that was my part of the the puzzle the, the frustration I've always had since is just how badly we've been credited over the find I always felt that hey we made the find we didn't get any financial reward from it but at least we'd always be like you know, noted whenever there'd be an article on the crusade, there'd be some mention of the people who were returned it. But no, very, very often there's just no mention at all, which I find a bit frustrating, not not just on a personal level, but also in terms of encouraging other people to, to find episodes of Doctor Who. I think it, it's a bit discouraging when, 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 when the facts aren't reported correctly. Yeah, well, I was going to say, even in terms of being a Doctor Who historian, whether it's yourself writing about the Doctor Who comics or whether it's uh, doing the info text on DVDs, uh, obviously you have a, a, quite an interest in preserving the history of the show. And and who found this episode is part of that history. Well, exactly, exactly. And it's tr it troubles me that when quite reputable publications get the facts about this wrong, it kind of makes me think. Well, the, the 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 other facts that I'm reading in these these various you know esteemed publications are they similarly not as well fact checked? Because surely it just can't be my particular um, experience that's being wrongly reported. So it does make me worry about the wider context of it too. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree with you there. But um, moving on, power of the Daleks. This is something. People were watching, gosh, it was October, November-ish last year, I think. I didn't see mine until after Christmas because I ordered a uh, an autographed copy from Annika Wills and it got caught up in the Christmas mail. And so I didn't see it until uh, just after Christmas. Um, I'm assuming you've seen it. <laughs> I haven't I haven't bought it on DVD yet, but I did see it at the cinema when it came out. Very good. What was it like at the cinema blown up on the big screen? It was very disconcerting. Um it was you, I, I, when you're in a cinema with a group of people. I, I because Doctor Who is so important to me. I'm kind of aware that I'm surrounded by people who perhaps don't have the same sort of um, uh, vested interest in it. So I'm kind of sort of self-conscious about watching Doctor Who with a, with a larger group of people. If you know what I mean? Absolutely. That they might, if they're laughing at the wrong things, or, or they're not getting as much out of it, or, or they're getting bored or something, it's very hard for me to sort of disconnect from that and, and enjoy it fully myself. 
So I, I much prefer to watch Doctor Who in a much sort of smaller group. With, say, say, just with my wife, who's also a Doctor Who fan. No, no problem there because we're both loving the stories. But, but with, with people who maybe not not as into it as I am, it does. I do find that a bit distracting. But yeah, so that was a bit disconcerting watching in the cinema, and and obviously being very old Doctor Who too. It it is necessarily much slower than modern Doctor Who. So maybe a, a number of the audience goers went, oh, Doctor Who at the cinema, I'll go to that. And then we're kind of a bit taken aback at, at, at the pace of it. And at the cinema too, they edited the episodes together. So there was no, there were no cliffhangers. It was just one continuous story. And while that's fine, because you wouldn't want to sit through the cliffhangers sort of five times, five or six times over. <laughs> all the credits. All the credits. But the... Um, the issue with that, of course, is that when you edit a, a, a six-part 1960 story together, you see all the, all the, all the necessary info dumping and recapping um, that happens because that's just the nature of, of Doctor Who in the 1960s. They're not expecting the viewer to, to remember necessarily the, the, what happened on the previous week. So you'll have these sort of shoehorned scenes into the into the episodes where the characters will essentially recap what you've just seen. And if you're watching six episodes back to back, it just becomes a bit, it can become a bit tedious if you know what I mean. But that's, that's, that's just the nature of the story. That's not a criticism of the animation or, or the story itself. That's just, that's just I, the nature of watching six back to back. And if I had been watching it at home, I probably would have watched it. I'd have broken it up. I tend not to like to watch an entire story, especially, especially a six parter. I'd, I'd, I'd break it into two or three segments, I think. Yeah. Now, there's there's a lot of opinions out there, very mixed opinions on it. I mean, some people think it's just great that it exists at all. Other people got upset that it was in um, letterbox, well, not letterbox format, but 16.9 format rather than, you know, <laughs> like it should have been, like a, a square <laughs> box in the middle of your television set. Um, you know, so many opinions. I've, I've been unkind, I must say, at times to say that the animation is a bit South Park-like, especially when they just sort of take a character and shuffle them from side to side. To hey, indicate. I like South Park. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, so do I, so do I. But the animation style, you know, where they shuffle a character from side to side to indicate movement can look a bit uh cheap at times but this is a project that didn't never had a lot of money behind it and this is the only way you can see it and i, I guess I'll, I'll put my neck out first and say look for mine i think it's probably the best way for a lot of people to see it because when you just listen to the audio it's really hard to know what's going on uh when you look at telly snaps telly snaps can just bore the pants off people uh at times so for me it's probably the best way to to see the episode but i'm interested in in your take on the animation style how how you watch it and so on yeah i'm not i'm I, I do find the animation a bit disconcerting you know when, when when we're used to watching live action doctor who i mean even even obviously just only looking at the Troughton era um it does i do find that that it does take me just a little bit to sort of mentally readjust when I watch, watch a, an animated episode. But once I get into it, once I'm immersed in it, uh, the fact that it's animated doesn't really bother me anymore, and I just become immersed in the story. The thing that you mentioned about when the characters sort of jerk across the screen, that does tend to sort of bring you back out again. There's a, there's a, there's a bit, I think, on one of the later episodes where, one, where, where the human characters is walking down the ramp of the Dalek ship, and it really is quite jerky you know what i mean it just and the people in the audience at their cinema laughed out out loud at that because it really was quite absurd the way the characters just sort of wobbling back and forward as they were they were supposedly coming down this ramp it just looked very unnaturalistic and mm. and so yeah there were points in there where i thought yeah that's a bit, bit 
but yeah, like you say, the limited time, limited budget. They did the best they could in the time, and I don't, I, I wouldn't criticize that because I think having the animation is far, far better than not having the animation. And and you know the prospect of perhaps one day having a complete set of all ninety-seven missing episodes as animations is is, is delightful because. Yeah. Let's let's be utterly realistic. We're not likely to find very many more Doctor Who films, if any at all. You know, as time goes on, it, I, to me, it just seems less likely that we're going to find any more. And and even if we do find more, we're not going to find very many. And so, animation's the next best thing, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, this we, ties- we should be celebrating it, I think. Yeah. Oh, indeed, indeed. And in a way, this ties back to a question I was going to ask you when we we're talking about the Crusade a moment ago. I was umming and ahhing in my head whether I'd actually ask it or not, uh, because I know some people are just, you know, sick to death of the topic, and that's the ask topic away. of well, it's the topic of the Omni rumor and finding more episodes. And obviously, you've you've been out there, found an episode. More episodes have been found recently in terms of Web of Fear and Enemy mm-hmm. of the World and so yep. on. But as you're just saying, then you know the likelihood of finding more is is decreasing all the time. It, it may never happen. I don't know. Um, so what 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 are your thoughts? I'll just throw it out there. What are your thoughts on the Omni rumor or just finding episodes in general at this point? I, I understand why the Omni rumor exists. I mean, surely it's it's the dream of every Doctor Who fan to own a complete set of of, of episodes, you know. And, and and in order to do that, we need to find them all. Um. So I, I get where these people are coming from when they're they're they're, they're clinging on to any thread of speculation that might you know I can relate to that. I mean I'm I'm sure as a, a as 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 a younger fan when I wasn't so clued up on, on the realities and practicalities of these things that I probably just believed that there were missing episodes all over the place as waiting to be discovered. But yeah, <laughs> mm. it, it has to my mind it has got a bit out of hand. You know, I, I don't I don't hang out in the forums very much, but some of the stuff I hear secondhand is a bit extreme. I have a friend of mine, um, John Preddle, here in New Zealand, and he's done a lot of research into um, Doctor Who broadcasts all around the world, and he manages a website that that tracks all of the, all the broadcasts. A hugely valuable resource, but because he's looked into all these countries that are screen Doctor Who, he's been a bit of a target for for these Omni rumor people in terms of like saying that he's holding back information and that he knows where these episodes are and everything. It's just not true, and he's very, very frustrated at it. And that sort of colours my opinion of it because I'm seeing I'm seeing a good friend of mine being sort of berated online for something that really isn't his fault or his mm. doing. Mm. So, yeah, when, when you talk about the Omni rumour, that's, that's kind of... A, I, I do feel a bit negative about it, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, there's even been a rumour in the last couple of weeks and I think it was about Galaxy 4. I can't even remember now what what it was about (laughs) i haven't seen anything and it it did come from someone who had had the good oil in the past they were someone who talked about enemy and web for example before they were announced and so it's someone who has some form but still at the back of my mind it's like yeah look i'll believe it when i see it that's kind of how i I treat it i'd also say too that it seems to me unlikely that if something is found that it would leak out in such a way it's more far more likely that it would be kept under wraps until the until the BBC were ready to, to make an announcement. Uh, the, the, the idea that something like that would first become known on a forum long before it, it had an official disclosure just seems a bit unusual. I know there were I know there were rumours that leaked out about 
our enemy of the world and and Web of Fear, but they seem to be sort of um, tied up with lots of other episodes that didn't come to pass. Wasn't they talking about it? There were three stories found, and Marco Polo was the other one. And so they can't have been, you know, whoever was leaking that wasn't entirely clued up, if you know what I mean. So and get and get the story entirely right. So I always think that if you're going to if you're going to find out the news, you're not likely to find it in a post on a forum. Yeah, I think Marco Polo's been found about a dozen times since the mid-80s, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, at least. <laughs> I can understand, too. Again, I can understand, too. I mean, of all the missing stories, Marco Polo, I think, has the maximum number of film prints that were produced for it. Is that so right? It, and so, because it was, of, of the missing stories, it was the most widely sold around the world. So... Because uh, the first package of stories from the first season was 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 very heavily marketed um, to international territories. So there 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 were there were in the sixties there were a lot of um, copies of of the film print of Marco Polo in, in circulation. Just the necessity of going to different countries. So, I mean, in terms of a probability thing, you'd expect Marco Polo to be discovered. So the fact that all seven episodes are missing is, is sort of defeats expectation there. Yeah. Oh gosh, that that really hurts. I I didn't actually know that fact before. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to stir up Omni rooms. <laughs> this is the this is the trap that you so easily fall into. I'm not saying you specifically. I mean, us as Doctor Who fans, is that um, you 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 read these facts about about missing episodes and you go, oh, this one must exist, and you sort of you convince yourself of the fact, and and then you start to convince others, and and before you know it, these things take on a life of their own. Isn't that crazy, though, that something with so many copies is something we haven't found, and others that with far less copies we have found? Yeah, and, but the, then the other the reality check is we're talking more than 50 years later. So, yeah. you know, and these things were never meant to, to be kept. You know, you, you bought, you, as a television station, you bought one screening, right? You, you, you played them for that, that, and then you either returned them or destroyed them. That's, that, that's the reality of it. So the chances of any television station still having something f- sitting there 50 years later that they've been unable to use for all that time just doesn't seem very probable. Yeah, that's, that's right. All right, moving back to Power of the Daleks, um, I was going to raise the story. I mean, I think part of the reason the animation works as well as it does, even though it is limited, is the story is a good one. You know, I think the only beef I've ever had with the story is the fact that the Daleks have built so many Daleks <laughs> using, you know, they've asked this guy, oh, can we, can we have a few resources? Yeah, sure, have a few resources. Yeah. They've used all the resources. Oh, and they've made all these Daleks. Where did they come from? That, that seems an awful lot of metal, for example, to have used. And, and, and what is the story with their capsule? I mean, the, the, the humans have supposedly dug it out of the swamp and moved it into the laboratory, and yet it's massive inside. It's absolutely huge. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, what is this? Is it a TARDIS? <laughs> Maybe it is. Maybe. I almost felt. I almost felt like when I was watching it, I felt they could have inserted a couple of lines here where they've discovered that the Daleks have actually built onto the back of the colony. Yeah, you know what I mean. They've cut a hole in the back of their ship and and and, and secretly put a put a whole wing on the, on the side. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that they should have changed it for the animation, but I'm saying in the 1960s story that maybe that line might have helped. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Now, the reason I was bringing up Power of the Daleks uh, at all, well, aside from the fact I watched it just after Christmas, is um, the colour version is about to pop out. I'd penciled in my diary that it was around February. Um, It was coming out at least in the US, if not the UK. I think the colour version is also screened in the US at this stage on BBC America. Um, I've only seen clips of it on online. What were your thoughts about colorizing this story? 
if it gets a wider audience, I don't see any problem with it. It's not my personal preference. I, 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 I think if something was produced originally in black and white, then that's that's the format. I, I have that attitude when it comes to comics too, incidentally, that you know, when they're, if they're black and white originally, they should stay black and white. But at the same time, like I say, if it gets a wider audience because they'll only tolerate watching a color thing, then then hey, why not? I don't. As long as the two versions are available, I don't have a problem with it. My my personal take would be to go with the black and white though. Yeah, and I, I guess beyond that is the the concept of colorizing something that was originally made in black and white. You think, well, why didn't they just make it in color from the start? And and I guess there's two teams involved all of a sudden. One has gone to all this trouble of putting in shading and, and making it look very nice in black and white, and another that comes along and colorizes another team's work. And I think they were a bit surprised that that had happened. I think, I think, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but from what I remember from the interviews is that it was only ever intended to be black and white, and it's simply that it's sort of a post-production thing that the, the BBC America decided they wanted to have it in colour, and so they decided they'd take that on themselves. So I don't, I don't, I think if they'd always going, I think like you say, if it had always been the plan to do it in colour, they probably would have done, but I think it's something that's come along a, a post, post-production. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm I'm certainly keen to see it. Um, you know, I'm being a completist. I'll probably end up buying the Blu-ray as well because I'm, <laughs> I'm just terrible like that. Yes, we're Doctor Who fans, so we're completists. Yeah, exactly right. And speaking of the territory, ex- exactly. And speaking of something else, I collect uh, each month Doctor Who magazine. I know you're a uh, Doctor Who magazine subscriber as well. I, I am a lifelong Doctor Who subscriber. <laughs> it is my favourite magazine in the whole world. <laughs> and this new one, um, I know, had a very special... Well, to, to everyone who got it, I think everyone pulled it out and said, oh, look at this, this is fantastic. But I think very special to you in particular based on the Doctor Who reference book you wrote uh, mm. on Doctor Who comics. Would you like to take the lead on talking about the uh, the special edition to this month's Doctor Who magazine? Well, the the issue itself is a, is a is a seventies themed issue, so it's all about sort of the Pertwee era and Tom Baker era of Doctor Who from the nineteen seventies. Um, but the the supplement with it is is a reprint of um, a story called Sub Zero, which was originally published in Countdown for TV Action in nineteen seventy two, and it's a um, full color. Originally full color to come back to our point, so it wasn't. It was not colorized. Originally in color, um, comic strip um, featuring John Pertwee meeting the Daleks, and and it's just. I, I'm going to say it's just brilliant. <laughs> I just love it. It's one of my favorite John Pertwee stories. Um, it's it, it, topically for you. It's set partly in Australia. Yes. There's a there's a uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge is destroyed and a nuclear attack. So. There you go. <laughs> you got that to look forward to. Oh, um, <laughs> lucky I live out of town. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's 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 one of those. I mean, things that um, particularly the the countdown TV action uh, Doctor Who strips did so well that they basically busted the budget in terms of these. They did things that were just absolutely could not have been done on television, and that's where I think where the comic strips really really went over the the TV series when, when they really just go, go to town and do something you just couldn't have done in the studio or on location. So, you know, a lot of it's set in Antarctica and, and, and there's a lot of planes and a lot of ships and submarines. And it just, you know, it, it would have blown their entire season budget just to do one episode of the, the comic strip, basically. So, yeah, it's, it's just fantastic stuff. And the thing that really excites me about it is that Penini, who are the publishers of Doctor Magazine, have been sitting on these strips for years 
Um, there, I don't know if you have, if you remember Rob in the early nineties, there was a short-lived um, uh, spin-off comic called Doctor Classic Comics. I do remember it. Yes. Yeah, and that ran for twenty-seven issues, and and that reprinted a lot of these um, strips from the nineteen seventies and sixties and eighties and, and whatnot. Then, and it was a brilliant magazine, and I, and I loved that dearly but it only ran for 27 issues due to poor sales so they, they got cancelled but of course in setting up that classic comics um marvel as they were then bought the entire rights to all of the the uh tv comic countdown tv action what we call the polystyle era because polystyle was the name of the publisher so they bought the entire rights so they've been sitting on the rights to reprint these comic strips ever since and the, obviously the hope has been that just as they've done with the um, Panini graphic novels of the of the Doctor Who magazine era comic strips, that they would do these earlier strips as reprinted collections. The issue with that is that these comics, particularly the the the, um, the countdown ones, are two page spreads. So they basically they were printed across the middle of the comic. You'd open it to the center page, and the comic would just spread across the left and right hand side. So you'd read it to left across the two pages. So the issue has been, of course, that what do you do about the center, the center spread? What do you do about the divider line of of the of the comic? Because often the the the, the speech balloons and the captions would would straddle that center line, because when you've got one sheet continuous sheet of paper, that's not really an issue. But when you're printing multiples of these, you've got to somehow line them up across the divider line. And particularly if you've got like a square bound book, like the Panini graphic novels are, you're going to lose that in the center of the page because you're not going to open it out flat. So what um, Panini for this reprint have very, very um, cleverly and skillfully done, and I, I, I've raved about this online, is that they have moved the um, speech balloons and the captions out of that center line. They've moved them to the side of it. And they've created the artwork seamlessly, I believe, because I've looked at the, and I've com- done a comparison of, and you've probably seen some of my comparison shots online, of of the um, original panels and the ones in this reprint. And, and you just, you, you barely notice the change. They've just been done so well. And that's all credit to Perry Godbold, who's the graphic designer who, on Doctor Magazine for many, many years. And Perry's just done a superb job of cleaning it up and moving these captions and, and uh, speech balloons. And the exciting thing for me is, of course, that having been, this has been such a success, I'm hopeful that they've they've treated that Panini have treated this as a test case, so now they'll go, hey, this has worked, everyone's loved it, let's do some more. So I'm I'm hopeful that either we'll see some more um, of these free gift supplements, or maybe even collected books of the of the comics, because that would just be absolutely brilliant to see. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question: whether you thought that might be on the cards. And, well, I'm hopeful. Um, I'm hopeful. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not. We're not too far away now. We're getting towards the end of the. Of, of the the Doc Two magazine run of of graphic novels, I think they've got about two or three volumes left to go before they've completely got up to date with them now. So they're they're running out of material. So I'm hopeful that once they've done all those, that they'll look to the the, the early polystyle stuff. And you know, given that they own the rights, it just seems a no brainer just to, to produce collections. But the issue is, of course, that. Uh, they don't have the original, although they, Panini own the rights, they don't have the original artwork. They've only got scans off the printed copies. So there's an awful lot of cleanup work that needs to be done to get them to, to print standard. So, so what's happened there? The artists have just kept their artwork or it's been thrown out or what, what's happened there? I, I Sadly, the latter. The, oh, uh, no. The because, I mean, you know, uh, the polystyle, I believe, I mean, 
TV comic who who was owned by Polystar shut down in 1984. And I think basically that that most of the, uh, the the art boards for the comics just weren't kept; they were just thrown out because they had no value to anyone. Because it was only many years later that that you know in the 1990s that that Marvel bought the rights. By which time, of course, it, I don't think much of it actually survived. And I I remember um, interviewing John Freeman, who was the intro at the time of the the acquisition. And and he went. He said he went along to the the warehouse where they'd stored all the art boards for the comics, and said, you know, they're basically they've been picked over. There really wasn't much left, so which kind of sad. But uh, some some of the artwork survives in private hands. There are there are isolated pages of of of, of the uh, 70s Doctor Who comic strip, and uh, that, that that you know people have kept, so they can be obviously if they've been borrowed and scanned, and you know as this. Um, uh, this this new supplement shows it is possible because these these are produced by just scanning the best possible printed copies of the the comic and then just cleaning them up and, and Photoshop or what have you. So it is possible to do it. It is it is possible to to, to get a, a, a perfectly acceptable um, reproduction from mm. the actual comics. And that was the same with classic comics back in the nineties. They would have all been just scanned off off copies. And you know even even I've Obviously helped out with some of the acquisition of some of the some of the strips that Panini didn't have copies of too. So it's it's you know there the copies do exist out there. So fans have very carefully kept copies. So there are some good good copies that can be uh, scanned. So it's not it's 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 achievable. It's just a lot of work. It's a lot of cleanup work. Yeah, exactly right. And look, as someone who's bought comic book art uh, myself, uh, not not uh, well, actually, I was going to say not Doctor Who, but I have I have bought some modern Doctor Who comic art. Not, oh, not really? From, yeah, not from this era, but from the IDW days. Um, oh yeah, I've got some pages, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in general, comic book art is is reasonably expensive to buy, and I was, I was just trying to add up in my head what these pages would actually be worth from the '70s strip, and, <laughs> and just thinking, oh my god, it was thrown out. No, mm, yeah. Uh, it, it just, you know, it just well, there wasn't any sort of resale market. I guess it just wasn't sort of something that was was done at the time. Uh, but hey, who knows? Maybe there is a collector somewhere who 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 who, who took it all home. Uh, and so, but no one's put their hand up to it. No, you know, it's probably happened. Someone's may have taken a lot of pages home, but they've gone and you know passed away, and the family's mm. just gone. Oh, this is this yeah. is junk, and just thrown it in the in the rubbish. I, I interviewed a number of the artists who worked on the strip when I was writing my book, and, and none of them had kept their work. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's just one of, one of those things. They just handed in their work, and it was printed and then put into storage. It wasn't something that they got returned to them. Far out. Uh, look, a quick question on the comics, then, because obviously you've written the Doctor Who comic book companion. Uh, comic companion, I should say. Comic strip companion. Comic strip <laughs> I've, I've got to get that right. You've written the co- Doctor Who comic strip companion. And... I'm wondering where there's a sweet spot that maybe uh, listeners could get involved with the, the older comics. Because I know, like, the 60s comics, I think of Hartnell running around with two um, preteens. And, and John and Gillian, his, John and his Gillian. grandchildren. Yeah. And, and that seems a bit, I mean, it could be very exciting, but it seems a bit odd. And, you know, but these Pertwee ones you're raving about, and obviously I've got to see this one now with Doctor Who mags, and I'm thinking, well, this is actually quite good. But then we have the 80s run where there are some absolute classics as well in the in the magazine. And I'm just wondering if you could advise people what to look out for, or maybe where to dip your toe, because, oh, well, th- this comic is most like the TV series, or this is what the TV series would have been if they had a bigger budget, or whatever the case might be. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth by any means. Sure, sure. What, uh, what would you recommend? 
I think each era of the the uh, I'm not trying to be diplomatic here, but each era of the of the Doctor Who comic strip, it's a bit like the television series. There's there's something to recommend from all eras. You know, you can talk about eighties Doctor Who, you can talk about sixties Doctor Who. You're not you're not going to sort of say, oh, you should only start watching with Spearhead from Space, are you? You're going to say, yeah. <laughs> um, but. Um, in terms of the comic strip, it's a pretty solid run if you start with the beginning of the countdown um, strips in 1971, a story called Gemini Plan onwards, and that's solid um, Pertwee-era comics. Quite a lot of it, but not all of it's in colour. Um, it's uh, the, the artwork is a considerable improvement on, on, on the 60s TV comic stuff. Um, the writing is of a higher standard because, and that's simply because they're writing from an older audience. I think it's very easy when we look at the Doctor Who comic strips from the 1960s in isolation to say, oh, they're very juvenile and they're very simplistic and they're very silly. But when you look at the comics that they were printed in, you understand that they were pitching to a particular readership mm. because we're we're looking at a strip, a, a comic that has Popeye, it has Tom and Jerry, it has, you know, um, yeah, or very sort of uh, silly, simplistic characters in it. And so Doctor Who is being pitched to fit in with that style. And whereas Countdown and later TV Action, as it was renamed, are much more sophisticated, older boys comic. So it's all about space exploration. It's about adventure. It's about detectives. It's, it's, it's aimed at a, you know, I don't know, maybe five years older than TV comic, and, and, and in terms of in terms of readership, and and Doctor Who fits nicely into that. It's 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 more the re- the viewership of the television series. It's not so dumbed down, and it's it it talks out to its audience. It's 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 a really really solid run, and for a time, and it's not it's not just countdown TV action. For a time when it goes when TV action gets cancelled and it goes back to TV comic, for a time it maintains those standards. Unfortunately, it does slip away over the the course of the seventies, but for a time we do still get really solid run of stories. But yeah, that in terms of, in terms of the sweet spot, that's that from from that era that that those uh, countdown TV action strips are, are the absolute bee's knees. They're the, they're the best of the of, of that period, but. You know, 80s Doctor Who comic strips are fantastic too. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> they're the ones I'm writing about at the moment. So, so I, I mean, I'm an absolute um, lover of the um, John Ridgway um, era with um, Colin Baker's Doctor. Because for me, and I think I may have said this to you before, but for me, we didn't get Colin Baker's stories in New Zealand for many, many years. So, I was, my, my, my Colin Baker era is the comic strip. And and to this day, I, I regard that as superior to what we saw on television. So, yeah, I'm an absolute admirer of that era. The the outfits in black and white for starters. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite disconcerting. I remember the very first episode of Doctor Who, I, uh, of Colin Baker's Doctor Who, I ever watched was Trial of a Time Lord episode one. And when you when you see the Doctor and Perry walking through that forest and they're sort of you know wearing their bright garish colours and it's all mm. and they're talking and everything, I'm like, okay, but then but it's not Ridgeway drawing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I, I have very warm memories. Uh, the the first Doctor Who magazine I bought when I started collecting it in sequential order was number one one nine. Has uh, funnily enough has Perry on the cover wearing that mm. awful yellow blazer. Well, that is that, that is the right era, isn't it? It is, and in that in that issue, the comic he's walking around the TARDIS with Frobisher, and it's it's oh, people might call it fan wank these days, but you can see Bessie is parked in one of the rooms. He walks past, and he walks past some of his old costumes on uh, mannequins, uh, headless mannequins, not 
they don't look like people. And I really enjoyed this story of him walking around the TARDIS and doing all this sort of stuff. And, and yeah, I particularly like that era and that style of drawing uh, as well from Ridgeway. You know, it is black and white, but uh, it doesn't suffer for it by any means. And you know, that's a Grant Morrison story too. Is it? Yeah. So that that's a, that that that's a particular standout for a lot of people is, but just because it's Grant Morrison, not because the story is necessarily anything to do with that, but because this is fairly early on, not not the beginning, but fairly early on in Grant Morrison's comic strip career, he was writing for Marvel when he was writing for Doctor Magazine. So, so yeah, there are a few stories in in, in that run that uh, that feature him. Yeah. Now, look, as you mentioned, this is a seventies uh, issue of. Doctor Who magazine. I, I don't want to steal the thunder of our letter lords. We'll probably talk about the, the magazine in great detail in their um, own show. But I do want to mention the Terence Dix interview in this issue. Isn't it's it fan- brilliant? Yes! It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's, I, I couldn't put it down. I mean, it's, it's very long. Like, you turn page after page and you're thinking, I don't want this to end. Oh, good, there's another page. Oh, there's another page. You know, and, and sometimes when interviews go on a bit, they can get a bit boring. But this one, I think like the Peter Davison one recently as well, I just couldn't put down. The thing I like about Ben Cook's interviews is that he steers the subject away from the anecdotes that you expect from them. Because Terence Dix particularly has a repertoire of anecdotes. You know, the monsters were green and, you know, such and such happened and Pertwee had a buffont and all these sort of the eye patches and everything. When you read a Terence Dix interview, that's what you get. And the fact that Ben Cook steers that away and does something different with it is, is quite impressive. And, and, and you, you get some stuff in there, particularly when he's talking about his relationship with um, Peter Bryant. Mm. Oh, yes. And talking about how he just couldn't get on with him because this was a man who would just go down to the bar at lunchtime and would just drink for the rest of the day. And so they were terribly unproductive on Doctor Who. And Terence Dix seems to have, from his perspective anyway, he seems to have carried the, a lot of the, the, the weight of the show at that time simply because um, Bryant was, was just getting drunk every day from the sounds of it. Yeah, he sort of suggests that at first he'd go, go down and have a few drinks, but then eventually he just wasn't going at all and just, you know, staying back in the office and doing the work. When I was reading that, I can relate to that. I used to be in a job for some years where that would happen, where there would be, not necessarily at lunchtime, but certainly on a Friday afternoon, there would just be this sort of, you know, knock off early, go and have a drink. And if there was work to be done, just people just basically just down tools and went. And I was kind of like sitting at my desk still working away going, I just can't, I can't relate to this culture. Mm. You know, as, you, as, as Terence Dix says, you try for a while to fit into it, but after a while you, you, you revert back to what your normal, your normal habits are and your, your new, normal sort of what you consider to be a working responsibility. And, and you just look at these people and you go, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. And it probably ties in neatly to the end of the interview where he says, he reminds us that, in, I think it was one of the DVDs, he said he'd like to be remembered as a professional and, you know, that's what he considers himself to be. And I think that's probably pretty true from everything I've seen or heard of, of Terrence Dix. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, he's, he's an absolute treasure. And the fact that he's still around when so many of his contemporaries are gone, you know, it's just, it's great he's still with us. You know, you have to, you have to think too, when you read these interviews, and, and obviously Ben Cook spent a lot of time with him and covered a lot of subjects, it's a terrible thing to say, but one of these interviews will be his last. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's, it really feels like they've really gone to town with this and, and, and covered everything they possibly can just in case they never get a chance again to interview him. Yeah, I, I agree. And in fact, I, I penned a, a letter to, uh, 
to DWM about this. And I almost went in that direction to say, oh, because it's probably the last time we'll hear from him. <laughs> I thought, oh, no, stop, Rob, what are you doing? No, no, yeah. And I, I sort of backspaced on what I was saying and, and, and said essentially the same thing, but not quite in the same way as to whether they use the letter or not. Who knows? Because sure. uh, I think this issue didn't even have a letters section, for example. No. No, it didn't. the the other The other part of the the issue that I really wanted to have a bit of a rave about was the time capsule. Oh yes, that's really great. It's even got a section on the comics in it, so that 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 really appealed to me too. So you've even got one of the the TV comic era um, comics reproduced in there, and and it just goes into all these things that happened in November nineteen seventy seven, and it sees the return of Gary Gillett, who's one of my favourite Doctor Who writers. When he used to um, review the DVDs, it was always a highlight of the issue. So it's fantastic to see him back in the magazine. Yeah, oh, absolutely, and I, and I guess rounding it out is uh, Mark Gatiss and Katie Manning doing some oh, of a, yeah. a double act. <laughs> yeah, and and again talking about the comic, so you've got photos of them holding up issues of TV TV action there, and they're saying <laughs> the funny thing is they're saying how valuable they are, and I go, I've got that issue on my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a nice bit in the text where I think early in the text, uh, Ben says the way um, Katie looks at the dog is the way I wish, you know, a woman would look at me one day. And then later, the way Mark looks at the (laughs) copy of the comic (laughs) is the way I wish a woman would look at me. (laughs) Oh, funny stuff. Have you have you have you met Katie Manning before? I I have. It was it was very briefly. It was when I was very young, so I was right. I want to say I was 12 or 13 at the time. So I wasn't into sort of hanging out with adults and asking them adult questions and doing all that sort of stuff. But I did meet her. I did speak to her. And at the Console 88 convention where I was, mm-hmm. in, in quotation marks, security, even though I was like 13 years of age, <laughs> but I was helping like, you know, check people's uh, passes and stuff. Um, I, I did get to see a bit of her in the green room sort of there. And she was lovely and crazy mm. and, and great. <laughs> I my abiding memory of the I've I've met her a couple of times when she's come to New Zealand and and my abiding memory was well like like you I was helping out with the convention and my responsibility was to pick her up from her hotel and drive her over to the convention one morning and I I went to the hotel and and I I I had to come pick up Colin Baker as well from the same trip so I'd gone up to call, fetch Colin Baker from another floor and Colin was getting ready so I said I'll go back down to the lobby and see if Katie's there. So I went back down to the lobby. Now, bear in mind, I'd never met her before. She'd never seen me before. I walk out of the lift into the lobby. There's other people in the lobby, and she comes straight up to me and, and throws her arms around me. I goes, oh, hello, darling. <laughs> now, she, there's no possible way I wasn't wearing any form of identification whatsoever that she wouldn't have known who I was. I just think she just must have been just greeting everyone like that. <laughs> <laughs> Until she found the right person, yeah. Because I could have just been any hotel, per, you know, I could have been a, a member of the staff, I could have been a, another fellow guest. <laughs> I think she was just greeting everyone in the lobby like that. <laughs> but that just sums her up. She's just so larger than life. Yeah, yeah. And look, speaking of other treasures larger than life people people sadly we might not have around for much longer although we don't want to really dwell on that tom baker turned 83 back on the 20th of january i thought that was no just keeps going and going doesn't he i know i know it's great Uh, did you see the video he put up on facebook where he it sort of starts with him just laughing maniacally No, I haven't seen that. Oh, he's recorded it. I don't think he, re- I think he's pretending it's on the day of his birthday. He probably right. recorded it a month yeah. before. And it's basically a message to say, hello, yes, I'm 83 and we're going to close down autographs for the next two months. I'm going to have a rest and then I'm going to come back and do more, you know, and a few other little mm-hmm. 
pieces. But yes, this video starts with him just looking at the camera and just <laughs> just laughing like this. Right. As only Tom can do. <laughs> exactly. And it's, I just thought, oh, you are, you are fantastic. Yeah. He's still recording Big Finish audios, isn't he? Still still going with those, right? Yeah, yeah, he is. He is. I, I don't think he does it on the same day that Lala does them. But um, <laughs> I think it's a case of they're just recording separately on different yeah. days. But yeah. they're uh, they're good. Although you know his voice has lost a bit of its even from the Little Britain days of I don't know ten fifteen years ago whenever that was. His voice has lost a bit of the bass, a bit of the sure. timber. Yeah. But uh, on the whole, it's Tom Baker doing Doctor Who. I mean, mm. how how blessed we are to have that at all. You and know? like you say, we just don't know how much longer we're going to have him for. So make most of them while you've got him. Yeah, and, and I mean, people out there might think, oh, that, that's a bit crass to be saying that, but Tom's been talking about his death for the last 30 years or so. Yeah, I mean, so. I think if Tom talks about it, everyone else is going to give him a couple, I should do so. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, gosh, some, some Star Wars news broke today. I wasn't going to, to mention this, but why don't I mention it, apropos of nothing? Star Wars The Last Jedi. Your thoughts, Paul, on the title? Well, I mean, I think you saw my comment on Facebook, but um, there, were, there were a lot of, when I first logged on this morning, there were a lot of people going, well, who is the last Jedi? Who is the last Jedi? So I, I pointed out, oh, come on, come on, guys. I mean, the plural of Jedi is Jedi. So it doesn't have to be one person. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it can be one person. And in fact, as as, as I also pointed out on the, on the, and I think you did too, on the opening crawl of um, Force Awakens, it identifies Luke Skywalker as the last Jedi. So that probably that's a direct reference to that. And so the, the title was a reference to Luke. That's the obvious assumption. But it can be more than one Jedi, surely. Yeah, I, I mean, if the movie ends up as Luke and Ray back-to-back fighting off some horde somewhere, they, they would be together collectively, it, the last it, Jedi. It's a bit dead-ended if they basically say Luke is the last Jedi and there are no more, mm. isn't it? Because, I mean, surely the thing about Disney-era Star Wars is they're opening up the franchise to an ad infinitum number of movies. That's, that seems to be the way they're going with this. So the certainly The Force Awakens sort of plants its sort of stake in the sand that would that they are moving on the old guard and introducing a new set of heroes who are going to take the series forward. That that seems to be my, my, my take on it is that, you know, that that the whole sort of Poe, Rafe and dynamic is, is they are the future of Star Wars and you know, obviously Han's gone, Leia's gone, um, Luke will be going presumably at some point that, you know, to say it's the last Jedi is kind of a bit defeatist, it's a bit sort of counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, they've got away with putting out a movie in the form of Rogue One that doesn't have, you know, people wielding glow sticks. But I don't think they can do that ongoing in the future. I think it's what people expect in the films. Are you you saying there's no one with a lightsaber in Rogue One? (laughs) Well, at the the very end there is. (laughs) Are we allowed to spoil people on this yet? Oh, sorry. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what the the statute of limitations is. It's it's been out for, what, a couple of months now. Yeah, there must be a statute of limitations sometime, though. But sure enough, someone would write in and say, you spoiled it for me that mm is in the film. Yeah, you, bet, you better edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's staying in. Um, but this is a um, a nice segue into me raving about some other piece of Star Wars um, in terms of Star Wars Rebels DVDs. But I'm going to put that on hold for a moment and go back to what I was going to say now that it's come back into my head. And that is Jedi. I think they've got to do more of them in the in the series. I think they've missed a trick to some degree in not having Luke in charge of his academy. They've um, sort of hinted that Luke has had his academy and it's been busted up, and I think Kylo Ren might have been involved in that, and it's come and gone. Mm. But I, th- I think in the future there's an opportunity for 
stories to be told about Jedi at the Academy, whether that, that be a TV series, like a live-action TV oh, series, okay. or whether it be uh, the plot of the movies, that there are, you know, a, maybe a trio of Jedi, perhaps, at the Academy growing up, and one of them turns bad or something, and the other two have to do... I, I- I think I think too that you have to consider the the dramatic potential of these things and 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 you know sto- stories about Jedi's at school possibly uh, haven't got quite the sort of impact as 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 you know the the universe at war sort of thing. You know what I'm saying? In in terms of a plot for a movie, I mean, yeah, we know the Jedi were at an academy at some point, but is it really what we want to see? I mean, with the prequel trilogy, for instance, you skip over anakin's many years of training don't you because mm-hmm. at the end of the end of oh god i haven't watched them many years the end of phantom menace he's accepted into the jedi academy if i remember rightly and at the beginning of attack of clones he's been there for many many years and he's basically already an adept jedi is that right yeah yeah that's right um yeah. uh, but what i think some of the books have covered and comics have covered over the years and, and many of these are now non-canon they've been they've been tossed out but when you're at the academy, you can go away and have adventures with your master, um, sure. and so the academy might only be part of that storyline. I, th- I think there's room for it in the future, but well, we're they, talking they a long of, time from covered, now. They covered it in the Clone Wars to a certain extent, didn't they? They had like Padawans and and and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, but we weren't following them in the sense that we would no. follow, say, Harry Potter at school, sure. for example. Sure. Not that I'm and, saying it should be like Harry Potter. By any and and coming coming back to your original point about Star Wars Rebels, it was covered that to a certain extent too, with the with the training of um of Ezra, um and by Kanan and then and the. In the, in the stories so so yeah i mean they, they do touch on it like i say i just maybe they maybe their their um viewers that there is not enough dramatic potential in just having lots of episodes of, of jedi being trained yeah yeah exactly now now getting on to what i wanted to rant about and i, I know you'll have some thoughts on this as well being a, a retailer in mm. real life blu-ray prices in australia my god i wanted star wars rebels folks <laughs> and I, I looked at a local retailer um jb hi-fi they're they're very good on price for everything you know we whatever have you, too. you have them exactly. there then, then, you know, same chain here. then you know exactly what i mean they uh, mm. they stack them high and sell them cheap and it's yeah. wonderful now star wars rebels at jb hi-fi on dvd the first season is uh 50 something dollars uh, like 50 98 or something like that the second season is 48 dollars. i don't know why the second series is cheaper because it's newer and there are more discs involved but logic doesn't seem to play any part in this anyway so altogether season one and two you're looking at 90 something dollars i can I, tell you why the second season's cheaper oh because there there is a general price drop across Blu-ray, is that the manufacturing costs and and just the marketing and everything that prices are gradually dropping across um, physical format, digital media, both DVD and Blu-ray. What they haven't done is they haven't adjusted the old stock to 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 match. So what really they should be doing is dropping the price of season one. That's yes. why that's why you've got the discrepancy there. Right. Okay. Well, that that does make sense. Um, but what I did was I thought I'm going to compare prices on this because obviously the UK is the same region as Australia, um, the, the the B region I think it is in, in terms of Blu-ray. And I looked on Amazon and I could get the first and second seasons and postage, which is, you know, coming from the other side of the world, yep. all together for $40. <laughs> <laughs> That's both seasons together, you say? Both seasons together, uh, posted yeah. to my door for $40 instead of me having to drive down the street right. and pay someone $90 for both seasons. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to do? People say buy local and, and so on, but come on, $50 difference? I could hardly believe it. Yeah. 
I mean, is that something that that you would ever put to the the, the local distributor in Australia? Would you write to them and go, "Hey, what, what what's your justification?" Do you know? I probably wouldn't because I don't know who they are, and right. and you know that would involve time, and and it's it's just so maddening yeah. and and i've already solved the problem i sort of move on and i guess you're asking in a more general way why why don't more people do this perhaps and, and maybe that would see a change well, I mean, it's it's consumer pressure that drives price right mm. i mean you know the the reason that these prices are so high is because they the the assumption would be on the part of the distributors that the market can 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 wear that price if they couldn't they wouldn't do it so you you really kind of like if no one's refusing to buy or if no one's complaining then then they'll just keep doing it part of the issue is is the rating system i don't know whether that plays a part in australia it certainly does in new zealand that we as a retailer cannot sell a dvd or blu-ray that hasn't been locally rated hasn't got a local rating sticker on it so while while as a private consumer i can i can buy something off amazon at a fraction of the uh of the local price uh, I certainly, I certainly can't resell it in New Zealand. So I have got a large number of DVDs in my my own personal collection that I could never resell here, not even for secondhand market online, because there are regulations here regarding the the everything has to have be stickered locally with a rating sticker. So uh, yeah, you're kind of stuck in terms of a, a, an on selling um, situation. So that's that's where's a bit of a, a bit of a monopoly when it comes to digital media, I think. Gosh, that is tough. Because I was going to say, hey, Paul, you could grab a few of these from Amazon. <laughs> well, I mean, that's. That, I was going to come to this. This, this is the issue of books. Um, being a retailer is that we obviously we buy books from wholesalers and we resell them in our shop. That's this is what you do when you're a shop. Um, so we will buy graphic novels. We'll buy um, Star Wars reference books. We're we're sci-fi retailers, so all that sort of thing is, is uh, our our bread and butter. But when when our local distributors sell into us and they, they give us the wholesale prices and then we compare online with, say, book depository, often what we're finding, and this is what you found obviously with the Blu-ray, is that the, the retail price on book depository, and book depository has postage free internationally, so you're only paying the price that's online, um, is often very much cheaper. It's up to, up to $10, $15 cheaper than what our wholesale price is. Now, the wholesale price is what we as a retailer pay before we even put our markup on it. So, mm. <laughs> what is the point? You know, and and often we have actually just brazenly gone to Book Depository and bought the books from them and put them in our shop at the retail at the local you know New Zealand retail price. We're not charging the customers anymore. We're just managing to make a margin on them that we wouldn't manage to make otherwise. So it's absurd. It really is absurd. Yeah, I was going to say you're still taking on the trouble of buying stock in advance. So you're still taking oh, yes. a risk on it and yeah, so on. Absolutely. So it's still business. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. I see oh, nothing business. wrong with that at all. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it is frustrating that we're we're not we're not getting um through for our because we want to support our like you say you want to support you know local local um business, so we deal with with local reps and and local suppliers. But we would love to support them, but when they can't offer us a pricing which is even vaguely realistic, you kind of go well something's wrong somewhere. And the reason I asked you whether you were feeding back on the D, on the Blu-ray is because we do feedback. We're, we're quite open and honest to our our wholesalers and saying, look, this is the issue why we're not buying the stock off you and, and this is why we're only buying one or rather than five copies or, or whatever it is that we're doing because you just guys, you, you can't, for whatever reason, you're not, you're not um, giving us a realistic price. 
So it, it is an issue, but I think too, as a retailer, that you, you there's a responsibility to feed that back so that there is an opportunity for the market to adjust. Because I think that New Zealand and or particularly New Zealand, because we are such a small market even compared to Australia, mm. that the distributors go, well, we're not going to sell very many copies of X units, so let's make the price as high as possible so we can recoup our costs on it. And particularly that's an issue with digital media because there is fixed prices in terms of getting the local ratings. Because if you buy in a, say, let's say you buy a, uh, you're a distributor and you buy a movie or a television series like Star Wars Rebels in from overseas, you've got to go to the trouble of paying to get the local ratings authority to view that and give it an appropriate rating before you can sell it in New Zealand. Right. And if, if you're only going to sell nationwide, New Zealand's not a very big country, if you're only nationwide going to sell, maybe, I don't know, a couple of hundred copies of the DVD, if it's, not, if it's an obscure series or something then is it really worth your while and how much markup do you need to put on it in order to recoup your costs of getting it rated? So mm. I, I understand the costs, but it's, at the same time, it just doesn't make it feasible. No, gosh, it's, what a heck of a market to be in. I was going to ask <laughs> before we finish up and move on, um, in terms of working in retail, I mean, we always hear stories about the big chains and such having having trouble and, you know, this and that going on in, in the market. But when it comes to being a specialist shop, do you think that helps or, or hinders the situation? Hinders maybe from the point of view of being a smaller market, but helps from the point of view that you have very passionate people who want to come in and, and enjoy maybe your knowledge behind the counter as well as the experience of buying a book or a DVD or whatever. Well, I think all of that... Um you mentioned before the risk. I mean, the, we have limited risk because we don't buy nearly as much stock. So when we see a new product come out, we may only get, say, you know, 10 or 20 copies of that product because that's what we realistically know we're going to sell in our one store. And if that product doesn't fire for us and it doesn't, we have to end up having to mark it down to clear it out and we make a loss on it, that's not a huge risk for us. Whereas if you're a huge chain and you might buy thousands and thousands of something and it just, you know, and then the movie comes out and the movie's a complete bomb and you go, oh, <laughs> you know, you're stuck <laughs> with all the stuff. So, yeah, we've got limited risk, but at the same time, we don't have the buying power. So when we're up against the big chains like JB Hi-Fi, and I know having worked from a, for a big um, corporation, retail corporation in the past, that the buying power they have is that they can go into a meeting with the distributor. I mean, in, in my case, it was um, electronic appliances rather, rather than DVDs or anything. But mm -hmm. we would sit down with the, with the, with the Sony or, or Philips or whoever they or Apple or whoever they were, and they would say, well, we, we've got this new, new laptop or television or whatever, and we're going to sell it into you at this price. And as a company policy, we'd go, no, we want a lower price. And you just keep bargaining and bargaining with them because you are such a huge retailer and you are going to buy X thousand numbers of units off this this distributor that they there is a negotiation that goes on that we as a single store retailer can't do because we're not buying enough units to to have that that clout you know we have to accept what the retail or the, what the wholesale price is because we don't we're not can't say we're going to buy a thousand units off you we're never going to do that so mm. so we're stuck in that respect yeah very very tough market to be in i imagine but like you say, we've got the experience and we've got the specialist knowledge. So people do come to us um, because they know that we will give them good advice. And and we, we know the subject. You know, if you walk into into a big chain retailer here, they're not possibly going to encounter someone who knows much about, say, Star Wars or Doctor Who. Whereas you come into our shop, you've got people working at the counter who are absolutely passionate on the subject and can recommend stuff to you. And yeah. and so, yeah, that's that, that's the advantage of a small um, specialist retailer. Yeah, someone walks in and says, I've heard about this Blake's. Seven. What's all that about? <laughs> well, let me take your side and tell you all about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 
All right, to round out, and funny enough, talking about TV shows, another nice segue back to Richard Nolan's email, um, because last uh, episode of the Doctor Who show, David and I looked at our top five TV series from when we were kids, up until the age of about 16. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, And, you know, so we picked all various different shows, and, you know, we tic-tac back and forth. We didn't double up on any of them. Do you remember what yours were? Oh, off the top of my head, I had Robotech. Uh, the, yeah. ca- the cartoon series. I had uh, Monkey. Yeah. Um, what else did I have? Oh, you're really stretching my memory now. I'd, I'd have to go and look up the show notes. <laughs> I was mentally thinking at the right, right at the moment what my pecs would be. <laughs> and uh, uh, David had, I remember, he had Astro Boy, like the 80s yeah. uh, remake mm-hmm. of the 60s uh, version. Uh, what else did he have? He had a, a few Australian-type stories. He also had... Um, uh, something Tony Robinson Baldrick did in the UK called Odysseus, the greatest hero in the world, which I vaguely remembered, but couldn't quite put my finger on as well. So it was a real hodgepodge of different different shows. Mm. And mine, mine would probably be Thunderbirds. Yes. Um, uh, probably MacGyver. Yeah. Um, Six Million Dollar Man. Classic. Oh, gosh. <laughs> 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 There's so many shows that I watched as a kid, but I'm just thinking Sapphire and Steel. Yeah would definitely be up there um and blake seven i think would be up. I mean, obviously these are other than doctor Who, right exactly exactly did yeah. you ever do uh, the buck rogers thing yeah yeah i, I did watch buck rogers but yeah. uh, battlestar galactica that yeah. was another, another yeah. one the original yeah. battle so the a-team was getting around um i never never watched a-team is that right yeah i never watched it Interesting. it must have been on opposite something because i just never ever watched it at all it's only been um in reruns on you know, we have a number of like um, sort of retro channels here in New Zealand. You probably do there too, um, where they they play old old eighties and seventies shows, and that's the only time I've ever caught any A teamers in the last few years. And I just go, <laughs> so corny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really is. But- what I didn't realise about the A team until until watching those is that it isn't nearly as violent as I thought it was as a kid. No, and no one ever gets killed, right? No, that's right. I it's, didn't realise as a kid. I thought that eighteen was entirely program. Probably my parents told me it was, and then discouraged me from watching it. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's pretty hammy, really. Yeah, it <laughs> is. I was really quite surprised by that. All right. So with that intro into Richard's uh, second half of his email, he says, "I also enjoyed your top five shows segment. I was probably a little old for most of the choices when they screened." Um, I'd have been in my mid-late teens in the mid-80s, um, afternoon show years, so while I remember some of your selections being on, I can't really say I watched them. I did have a couple of the early and original Masters of the Universe toys in the early 80s, and I remember the little story booklets that came with them, and yes, the cartoon series was a very different storyline. I'll just pull up there. Paul, were you ever into Masters of the Universe by any chance? No. No. no, I think I was possibly a little too old for that. It wasn't. Ah. It wasn't on. It wasn't on when I was a kid. It was. It was on when my when my younger siblings were 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 young. Were young but um. But no, I, I think I'd sort of moved on a bit by that point. Okay, Richard continues. It was one of the first cartoon series made after the U.S. government listed restrictions on using kids' TV to push toy lines. Hence, lots of new characters um, that you could then buy as action figures. The GI Joe cartoon was the same. Masters of the Universe was probably one of the last kids series I watched. The other would have been Thunder the Barbarian. For what it's worth, my top five would probably be, um, and I've left out Doctor Who, The Goodies, and Blake Seven. Number one, Gigantor. Do you remember this at all, Paul? I know of Gigantor, but not one I watched. Okay. He says, this is the first series I can remember getting sufficiently into in the playground at kinder and school aged four and five. The other would be Batfink, but that's not as cool. I I have not watched either of these, I've got to say. Mm. <laughs> Number two, Battle of the Planets. And I can stop the clock right there, as uh, John O'Park would say. Um, 
Battle of the Planets, I've recently bought a DVD of. There was a big sale uh, from Madman, the uh, mm. distributor here in Australia, yep. and there is a Battle of the Planets. It's like the top ten episodes picked by a super fan or something, yes. and, and it's on a disc. And I said, I'll have that because it was like five dollars or mm-hmm. something. Absolutely, you're yep. saying, hmm, did you buy this too? <laughs> I'm so, I, I do have Battle of the Planets. <laughs> <laughs> the real, although I mean, I mean, obviously, I think I, you know your 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 letter writer is going to get onto this. So maybe we should leave a little bit more discussion until he's actually had his comment first. Maybe, but yeah, there's more I can say about Battle of the Planets. <laughs> All right. Well, Richard says this was a big after-school hit in the late '70s, and a series for which friends and I would make a point of stopping whatever we were doing to sit and watch, even in the watered-down English version. Jason, brackets, Joe, was still the cool one. I can remember being disappointed that I couldn't find any Battle of the Planets toys, so I had to make do with a phoenix of Lego, made of Lego. Watching some of the original Gatchaman episodes years later was a bit of an eye-opener. Over to you, Paul. Have you watched the Gatchaman episodes? I've never seen them, no. I I, I understand the concept and how it's based on it and dubbed and all of that stuff, because Robotech was similar and, and other shows are similar, but I've never seen that, no. Yeah, it's very different. <laughs> the cultural divide is is very apparent. I mean, you've got the the the, the you've got sort of got um the male characters le- leeching after the one female character in it for a start, which is really kind of like Not a princess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh no. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and and the whole thing with um uh, Seven Zark Seven is all is all part of the the the, the um the English version. It's not in the original. Oh, wow. So yeah, it's it's very different. They've they've, they've chopped it about so much. It's just incredibly different. But, yeah, it's – I don't know if it was aimed at a, at a more adult audience, but certainly the themes were a lot more adult in the original Gatchaman. Yeah. Yeah, and that's certainly the case in, in Robotech, which was based on uh, Macross and a few other Japanese mm. anime. And also um, – now the, my list is coming back to me now as I, as I think about this uh, – Star Blazers, which was the English version, and Space Battleship Yamato was the Japanese version. Right. And, 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 again, both – Space Battleship Yamato and Macross were more adult than they sort of became when they were sort of dubbed and edited into English. Sure. All right. Number three on his list, Monkey. Any thoughts there before I read his uh, comments? Yeah. um, I I did watch Monkey as a kid, but it never really grabbed me. I I think I was very much more a sci-fi kid, if you know what I mean. So the fact that Monkey was more sort of fantastical, it kind of, I was found it a bit off-putting. I don't know how you felt about it, but... It was actually on my list, so... Oh, was it? Oh, okay, right. I quite enjoyed oh, it. My, my, my wife is a big fan of Monkey growing up, so yeah, I know I'm on the outside there. <laughs> uh, Richard says, I was a little annoyed they took Doctor Who off at the end of 1980 to screen Monkey. I think it took about 90 seconds in the first fight scene before I was hooked. Again, no toys, so we made broom handle wishing staffs, only for playing Monkey to be banned after one of my friends got a broken finger from a crack over the knuckles while recreating Monkey's adventures. <laughs> I, I can remember distinctly as a kid being told off for for for, for play fighting when we, when in fact in our minds we were recreating scenes from television programs we'd like so i can relate to that yeah exactly i think we've all been there yeah number four on his list sweet and sour now this is one you might not have even got in new zealand it was no i've s- never heard of it Okay. It was, before I read his comments, my memories of Sweet and Sour is it was uh, set in Sydney and they were uh, an up and coming band and it was very 80s, very colourful and I think it might have been a real band or at least the backing band were real musicians so they even put out an album, there was sort of a TV tie-in album to the to the TV show. It was... Uh, is, is, is it like the Monkeys? Is it like a 
Australian version of that? Or is it something quite different? No, no, no more drama. So it's certainly right. not as oh, okay. color. It wasn't colorful and comedic in that sense. It, it oh, okay. was, uh, it was, uh, much more drama oriented. And, uh, Richard says, I was 14 when Sweet and Sour first aired. Um, and it was a series I really enjoyed and found it still held up pretty well when I rewatched it a year or so back. Unlike Home, which was another, uh, early eighties Australian series I remember quite liking at the time, Home was definitely a kid series and didn't appeal beyond the initial nostalgia value when I found a few episodes years later. A shame Sweet and Sour has never had a DVD release as it's a series a lot of people seem to remember quite fondly. And yeah, I certainly remember it. I was younger than Richard when it was on, but I do remember it and I particularly remember it having a, an, an album at the time. What 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 year would we be talking? What sort of? I want to say, and this is just off the top of my head, about eighty two, eighty three. I would be watching a lot of television then. So if it had screened in New Zealand, I definitely would have remembered it. So I, I, I'm going to go on a limb there and say that we ne- probably never got it. Mm. Yeah, it was it was like an ABC sort of you know show and didn't go for many seasons, maybe only right. one or two. So. That uh, yeah. probably just didn't get picked Which up. Which is, I mean, it's unusual because we did get a lot of Australian imports here. It's, you know, it wasn't unusual for us to see. We got neighbours and everything like that. So, yeah, it wasn't like we were ignoring Australian television. <laughs> <laughs> and, and interestingly, though, in the reverse, we didn't get a lot of, of your stuff. Like, is it Shortland Street? Yeah. Um, like uh, talking to Doctor Who fans in New Zealand, say in the eighties or nineties, they talk about Shortland Street and you think, well, what the hell's that? You know, we we just didn't have that at all. Um, so there there were some things that we didn't get either of, of yours, and yet you know, I think they would have crossed over pretty well. Mm. Yeah. Did you get like because we we had a very strong industry in the eighties of um, sci fi kid alt dramas like Under the Mountain and Children of the Dog Star and ones like that? Did you get any of those there that you know uh, of? Un- Under the Mountain we definitely got because I yeah. I love that very much uh, yeah. and I can even go off on a tangent here and tell you that I did a book review on it at school and nice. uh, to go with the book review I went and stole our our neighbour had these this uh, pebble white pebbles in their uh, garden. Mm-hmm. And I found a perfectly formed oval white stone and I got some blue chalk dust and I rubbed that blue chalk dust on the stone to make it look like it was glowing blue. And, yeah. I, and I put it in a little pouch and attached that to my book review and hung it on the wall oh, at dedication. school. Oh, I was right there. I, I love this idea of these, these uh, twins, uh, obviously, Theo and uh, Rachel. Rachel. And uh, what went on, and uh, the Wilberforce was it? The Wilberforces were yep. like slugs, and um, oh, it was fantastic. We we um, watched the, the episodes um, a few years back again on DVD, and realised that where we live on the North Shore in Auckland is very very close to a lot of the filming locations, and a lot of places that you were actually just in our local sort of walk. You know, when we when we just go for a walk around the block, there are the locations that they were filming in. So we're we're really in the heart of where the where they shot the the original um, under the mountain. Um, a lot of it's shot on the the shores of Lake Papuki, which is just um, behind where our shop is in Takapuna. So it's very very local drama for us. Oh wow! Um, and and the the remake of the, the film that they made a few years ago was also shot in the same locations. And um, my wife Rochelle, who's a big fan of the original series, went to the um, the locations and 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 saw them building the sets and 
went back as they were breaking down the sets and was actually uh, um, able to sweet talk the uh, the people who were breaking down the sets into letting her take the will- some of the Wilforce home of her the Wilforce house. <laughs> so she's got she's got a couple of windows from the Wilforce house in our garage. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Yeah, that so awesome. there you go. That's yeah. fandom. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I re- I remember that very well, and I've got I've got the DVD of the original series, but I still haven't seen the remake. I should well, probably the, the movie's pretty good. It's 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 not as good as the original um, TV series, whatever it is, but you know, but um, it, it's certainly worth a watch. Yeah, yeah, and and again, similar. I sh- I should have put this on my top five list because similar to the Japanese anime, even when it was rec- not recreated, when it was redubbed in English and uh, lost scenes and so on, they were still quite adult in some ways. And I remember under the mountain, their cousin Ricky, I think, mm-hmm. uh, Ricky gets killed. That's uh, right. I hope that's not a spoiler to people after 30 or 40 years. <laughs> yeah. But Ricky gets killed. And I it's remember quite thinking, a disturbing oh scene, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for a kid's show, I was quite yeah. shocked by that. And th- and then yeah. instantly felt, oh, I'm, I'm watching quite, you know, adult stuff. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, he, it's really quite dead. scary. Yeah. Yeah, no, I remember that well. Yeah. All right. Number five on Richard's list, The Young Ones. Before I read his remarks, do you have anything to say about The Young Ones? Love the young ones. It came along at just the right age for me. I was just sort of getting to that rebellious teenage thing, and it just, it just spoke to me on so many levels. It, it was screened. I don't know we, when you got in Australia, but it was screened incredibly late at night in New Zealand. We there was sort of an, a, a sort of a I, I can't watch night of the week, but probably a Friday night. But it was sort of an alternative television slot, and we got Red Dwarf in the slot as well. We're talking like ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at night, ridiculously late. So it's kind of like almost like a sort of student late night thing, you know. And so no one really heard about it unless it was word of mouth. And, and and it's just something that I just absolutely adored. Yeah, well, Richard uh, answers this to some degree in what he's written here. He says, this would sneak in if we're capping the shows at 16. I can remember the first late night run of season two, but it was the 1986 repeats of the whole series at 9pm when I became a devotee. And I've got to say, that's when I was watching it too. I was 11 years mm. old in 1986, and I was watching this stuff at eleven at, at 9 o'clock at night rather and thinking, ha look at me, I'm staying up watching this well, stuff with the same bastard and words like yeah. this. 86 was my last year at high school. So, so that contextualizes it for me. So that's kind of like, you know, that's, that's when I would have been really into it. Yeah. Your last year at high school, my last year at primary school. So I was right. off to high school the year after. Sure. Um, with all of this in my head, you know, Vivian and Rick and, you know, mm. Neil and so on. <laughs> it was so quotable. Oh, absolutely. It just, I mean, I, I, you know, years and years later, I can't remember them all, but, you know, have we got a video? Was like the thing that you... Because yes, <laughs> we've got a bloody video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can just remember there was a period when myself and my school friends, like the thing to talk about. Yeah, it certainly was. And that's a nice segue into Richard saying, some friends and I wanted to do Living Doll at the school concert that year, but were knocked back. <laughs> the, the other option would be, um, for him, the first two seasons of Blackadder, which also slip in, in, in mm. under his 16-year-old limit. And yes, Blackadder was absolutely awesome, uh, yeah. Richard. So anyway, this is now a very long email. Yes, it was. We broke it into two parts. <laughs> it was that long. So once again, uh, really enjoy the episode. Happy New Year and keep punching. Thank you, Richard. He really went to town giving you a lot of a lot of feedback there. Oh, it's fantastic. Um I love I love a good letter. Yeah. So wow, that brings we've discussed a whole lot of stuff today, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> 
Doctor Who magazine, Power of the Daleks, Richard's top five TV shows, retail it's, in New Zealand. Um, it's nice to talk about things that aren't just Doctor Who as well, I have to say. Yeah, and I think it's fun for listeners too. Hopefully, if, if people like this, please write in and let us know if that's the case. Uh, <laughs> hello at the dwshow.net and tell us all about it. And with that, it just leaves me to say thank you very much, Paul, for joining us today. You have been an excellent co-host. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, one day if I get over to New Zealand, I'll have to come down to the store and uh, check it out and check out some of these locations for Under the Mountain as well, I think. Absolutely. I'd take you on a tour of Under the Mountain locations, definitely. I, I would really like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you ever been to New Zealand? I have. I've been to Auckland once. Right. Uh, which is terrible because it's so close and it is so cheap to get to. It is It is actually very not good that I've only been once, but... um. I should get over more. I know my wife wants to come over, so that might be an impetus for me to, to come over. Mm. Do it. I will. All right. <laughs> Thanks again, Paul. Thank you. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at The DW Show. Facebook.com forward slash The DW Show is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who. You're, you're just on the subject of that quote. You're, um, there's a slight correction there. Um, they alter the facts to fit their views, to fit not their the views, views as you put. Ah, okay. I, was I, ca- I, che- I checked the script just before coming on. Oh, this is why I've got you on. Uh, <laughs> 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 ah, there's something I put after the closing credits. Um,